This is The Guardian. Today, the events that made 2022, with Guardian Editor-in-Chief Catherine Viner. Whatever we call this time that we live in, where events move at dizzying speed, and a whole era can last as little as 44 days, the consensus might be that 2022 was a year where things got worse. A major land war in Europe. Record-breaking summer temperatures. So within five minutes, they said that our house, it couldn't be saved. What is worth more, art or life? The end of an entire age in the UK. From the Great Abbey and into the sun. From this abbey, past Buckingham Palace and out to Wellington Arch. Millions of people at risk of falling below the poverty line. Yeah, I promise you, you'll not be homeless. Even if we've got, like, I've got to sit here with you here, we'll put some bloody blankets there. I, I promise you, darling. And even the purest things, feeling tainted by scandal. It's Argentina. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Champions of the world's greatest game. And you might think the combination of these events would have left people feeling hopeless, like they just wanted to give up. Except this year, that isn't what people did. When their homes were threatened, they fought back. When their friends were arrested for what they wore, they spoke up. My heart is broken, but right now Iranian women are resisting. When their rights were taken away. They made the people who took them pay. So far, it does not look like a red wave. And when one team of champions fell short... He's missed it! Harry Kane... Another stepped up. England! European champions! For the very first time! And quietly enough, that it's easy to forget. This was the year an emergency ended. This is our fifth um, Glastonbury and we absolutely love it. And the most precious things returned. At The Guardian this year, we've covered it all. And today, we look back with Editor-in-Chief Catherine Viner. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, looking back on 2022.
Catherine Viner, 2022 started with the hope that the COVID-19 pandemic that had overshadowed nearly every day of this decade so far might finally start to ease, but there was another threat looming. We have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week, in the coming days. This is probably the most dangerous moment in what is the biggest security crisis that uh, Europe has faced for, for decades. What do you remember of the morning of February 24 this year? I mean, it's interesting how you frame that, Michael, because my memory of that time was that although the intelligence was saying that an invasion was imminent, most people didn't believe it. And there was a sort of incredulousness on the morning of February 24 that this could be actually happening in the middle of Europe in 2022. It started early this morning. The Russian assault on Ukraine began with missile attacks on key targets. But across the country, Ukrainians woke to explosions lighting up the dawn sky. We got to mobilising all of our resources um, onto the story. I've been walking around the streets of Lviv this morning. You know, massive queues outside a lot of the banks, people having conversations about, you know, do they stay? I mean, people who are visiting from Odessa, should they go back and fight? I mean, this bomb shelter is an underground car park. There's a couple of kids from the neighbourhood, which is somehow much more heartbreaking than all the adults, you know, them having to deal with this threat. Also, you know, how their future might be changed. Obviously, the first thing we usually do is is start one of our best in the world (laughs) live blogs. And the audience around the world came to us in, in their millions in order to find out what was going on. And I guess, unlike most people, you don't have the privilege of just dwelling on the shock. You have to actually get to work on it. Can you tell me about some of those early meetings, some of the things that you tried to put into motion on that very first day of the war? So I think something that we're really proud of at The Guardian, something that's very important for The Guardian, is that we have always really invested in our international coverage. So a few years ago, when we had to make cuts and The Guardian was losing lots of money and so on, we didn't cut the international department because we realised how important global news was for The Guardian. So when the invasion happened, we had a lot of experts already at The Guardian who were real experts in, in Russia, in Ukraine and in Putin. And as you can imagine, they all stepped up and said, we're ready, let's go. We're just outside the city of Nikopol. Uh, And if you look behind me in the haze, you can see Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which has been occupied by the Russians since March. Now, what they've been doing over the last couple of weeks is using it to shell across the Dnieper River, uh, lots of damage. We're gonna go and have a look and see for ourselves what's going on. There is often a tension in war reporting between getting powerful stories, showing people what war looks like, what it does to people, and keeping reporters safe at a time where their status as neutral observers is often not respected. How did The Guardian strike that balance? I mean, it is really, really difficult. And, you know, I think there's often a conflict in a stereotypical sense between the reporter who is hungry and on the ground and the editors who are at home and want them to take more care. And so it's a real challenge because, you know, it's it only takes a, a random bullet, as we saw with several international reporters in Ukraine this year. You know, it's it's, it's impossible to keep yourself completely safe. So it is it is something that keeps editors awake at night, believe me. 
And after nearly a year of really incredible coverage, what stories have most stuck with you? Gosh, there are so many, uh, Michael. I mean, I think most obviously, most significantly, the stories of, of war crimes, you think initially of what happened in Butcher and our reporting of that. We're in Butcher now, yeah. So this is uh, this is a McDonald's and the, the flat of Taras flat is very close. Oh, this is where the yeah, uh, the, the gentleman yeah, was killed. Yeah. The story I'd done on the weekend: an elderly man had walked up to a checkpoint, and this man had basically confronted a Russian soldier, and he said something aggressive to the Russian soldier. So the Russian soldier shot him in the head, and it, the first thing I saw entering the town was that McDonald's restaurant, and it makes it feel very real. He was killed just here. The bombing of the maternity hospital in Mariupol, that was a very, very upsetting story. And then actually there was a really, um, I hesitate to use the word joyful story, but the story of the man called Igor who walked sort of 250k from Mariupol to Zaporizhia across sort of enemy lines with his dog. I think his dog was called Juju. It was just a sort of incredible story of resilience of an old man um, that our reporter Dan Boffy got hold of. It's the story of somebody who was in living hell, who at some point decides that he has only one choice and that's to get out. Taking his guidance from the sun, settling in where he can at dusk, often not entirely convinced that he'll wake up the next morning. He somehow did this amazing journey on foot, talking to soldiers. All these soldiers were astonished that he'd managed to walk so far, play, play cards with some Russian soldiers. He was a Ukrainian man. He sort of had bloodied feet. His poor dog had terrible problems with his feet. He was going over bridges that had collapsed. And I think it's now being made into a Hollywood film, like you might expect. I was going to say, it sounds like a Netflix special in the making. Yeah, and it's, and it's true. What I guess it showed throughout everything was that, you know, as a sort of humanity emerges, even in face of a really bleak situation. OK, so the war in Ukraine, terrible as it is, did briefly invigorate the scandal-ridden government of Boris Johnson, who started the year as Britain's Prime Minister, but of course, who would go on to be one of three people who held the job this year. It's a sorry saga, and I'll spare you and our listeners a recap of every scandal, revelation and resignation. Oh, thanks for that. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> but what was it like running a news organisation during such a chaotic period? <laughs> I mean, it was an absolute frenzy of politics, I have to say. And I think my job was to try and make sure that our reporters and editors sort of kept their heads um, and not be too sucked into it ourselves. Is it all over, Prime Minister? It looks that way, whatever he may wish. The Prime Minister head into Parliament to battle on Nothing um, left for him to do other than to take responsibility and resign. The job of a Prime Minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going. The charades up, the game's up, really. Will you be Prime Minister tomorrow? Uh, uh, of course. I'm just hearing from a very high-level government source telling me that it's done. It's done. He needed a final push, but it is done. Hasta la vista. Baby, thank you. 
how do you think Boris Johnson will be remembered now that he's gone? Um, I think whatever Boris Johnson tried to do, um, and there were a few good things that he tried to do, perhaps notably around the environment, but whatever he tried to do, I think it's always shrouded in his personality and his identity and his lies. I mean, he just is a serial liar. He finds it impossible to tell the truth. And I think that that would always get in the way of sort of eulogies of, of the Boris Johnson prime ministership. Well, Boris stuck around until September. And then we had the Liz Truss era, all six weeks of it. And now Rishi Sunak. What does this rapid succession of leaders tell you about politics in the UK today? What lessons do you think we can draw from what appears to be chaos and madness? <laughs> it's such, I, I lived in Australia when there was this period in Australian politics where there were endless new prime ministers and the rest of the world was sort of laughing at Australia. And now I feel the same is happening in Britain, perhaps slightly less now that Rishi Sunak is in charge. But interestingly, people from abroad really look at Britain and think it is all driven by Brexit. Uh, this is a narrative that we um, prosecute quite often in The Guardian, but is not widely shared, perhaps because a lot of the rest of the press is so was so pro-Brexit. Obviously, the pandemic, which is shared by the rest of the world, but I think the particular response to the pandemic when Britain had had more than a decade of austerity, meaning that public services were far reduced and so on. I think it has led to a real cocktail of dysfunction. But I think you, it would be fair to say that it is the, the Conservative Party that that cocktail of dysfunction is applying to. This is, this is not a necessarily a political crisis. It is a crisis of the Conservative Party who, you know, just don't know which way is up. In terms of the politics of the moment, though, do you draw any hope from the rapid downfall of Liz Truss that her extreme free market approach that's been so influential in the UK and elsewhere since the Thatcher era appears to have been totally rejected, if not by the voters yet, then at least by the markets? Isn't it interesting? I mean, it was supposed to be the extreme pro-market ideology that the markets would love. And it, remember, it was chosen by the Conservative Party members. So there's some people who still believe that low taxes and a trickle-down economy is the way forward. Uh, they, they did vote her in. But I think the absolutely thorough way in which uh, it was renounced by almost every sensible economist, I hope, is the death knell for such extreme economics. The week she came to power, just when you thought it couldn't get any busier, one constant presence in the UK did come to an end. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The palace has just issued uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. This was a big moment for, for every news organisation, and I'm interested in how The Guardian approached it. As a news outlet that is Republican in its outlook, how did you seek to frame our coverage? What was the balance that you were trying to strike? Yes, it's interesting. So although as a news organisation, we 
do not think that a constitutional monarchy is a good or democratic form of government. That doesn't mean that the death of Britain's longest ever serving monarch is any less of a significant news story. So I think it was very important that we respond to that significant historical moment while, I would say, not being over the top. You know, British readers, I think, overwhelmingly understood that. Perhaps some of our international readers thought we'd slightly lost our heads. But, you know, I think I think it's really quite an interesting moment because we're waiting to see what kind of country Britain will be without Elizabeth II as head of state. You know, sometimes I think is this sort of frenzy of hatred towards Harry and Meghan sort of part of this post-Elizabethan moment Mm. I mean, there was a way that the Queen was covered because she was so revered, especially in her later life. And Charles has a different profile. He's been more outspoken, more controversial. And I wonder if you think the media, including The Guardian, will cover him differently to his mother. I mean, people are much less sentimental about Charles. I mean, I think, you know, I remember periods when Elizabeth II was absolutely not treated with that kind of reverence during the death of Diana and so on. So, you know, things change. It'll be interesting to see at the moment the press are so dramatically lining up with the palace against Harry and Meghan that that's sort of blurring how the new king is being seen, I think. Well, speaking of the new king... One of the things that Charles III has been ahead of his time on is the climate crisis. And he's come to power in a year of record temperatures in the UK with villages and landscapes set ablaze. On a day that has seared itself into the nation's memory, this is a village of Wennington. Local residents could only watch and wonder as house after house was destroyed. Do you think this was a moment where in the UK, the climate crisis finally became something that couldn't be ignored anymore? I mean, not just in the UK, but everywhere. Undoubtedly, the climate crisis is happening more quickly and more dramatically. Everyone can see it. Everyone can feel it. And I think most of all, people want to act. They want governments to act um, and their governments are letting them down. It's such an incongruence from what they can feel happening to how governments are behaving. It's um, It makes you want to bang your head against the table. And I do think that, you know, if, if governments can wake up to this, they will find a very willing support from populations. And how do we keep telling these stories about climate, but also about issues like biodiversity and broader environmental stories when so many people find it easy to just switch off? Like, how do you explain what's at stake without scaring people or making them feel like it's also difficult and hopeless that it's not even worth paying attention to? Yeah, it's a big challenge. Although, interestingly, I mean, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago, it used to be believed that you couldn't really get an audience to stories about the environment, that they were, you know, nobody was interested. And that's just not what we find at The Guardian at all. We find that our coverage of the environment gets really massive global audiences and people really, really care about us. Our supporters tell us that this is one of the, you know, one of the things that they are most grateful to The Guardian for, that we've been so committed to cover the environment in such depth, in such a range, and so globally for so long. One of the ways to make people care is to talk about nature and animals and uh, biodiversity. I think another way is to really make it human, trying to bring it down to the everyday 
level. I think at the same time, though, we also want to tell the truth about what's the you know the latest projections are, what the latest data is showing. Uh, we also think we're the leaders in reporting on climate negotiations, such as both COPs this year. We organised a editorial that was signed by more than 30 media organisations around the world to demand a windfall tax on, on, on fossil fuel companies and so on. So I think, again, we try and operate on, on many different levels um, with our reporting. Hmm. And as in Ukraine, doing this kind of environmental reporting can come at a great personal risk. As we learned again this year with the absolutely tragic and criminal death of Guardian contributor Dom Phillips. I mean, what do you remember about when you first heard that Dom had gone on this trip and hadn't been heard from? I mean, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I never met Dom Phillips or Bruno Pereira, the activist who Dom was travelling with. Dom was a longtime contributor to The Guardian based out of Brazil. Everything I read about him made me wish I had known him. Bruno Pereira was an environmental defender on the front line working with indigenous people and Dom Phillips was a war correspondent in this undeclared conflict over nature. He was missing for several days, but our reporters in Brazil quite soon feared the worst, knowing how these gangs in the Amazon operate. But, you know, Dom brought the stories of Brazil and Latin America as a whole, actually, to a global audience. And I think, you know, his his murder and Bruno's murder, they're a reminder that environmental journalism is now one of the front lines of the threats to press freedom and perhaps the one that gets talked about the least. This is far from the biggest story of the year, but Twitter, the favoured social media platform for journalists, is now owned by one of the world's richest people and a man who appears to be regularly flirting with far-right ideas. It felt like, as recently as a few years ago, social media was threatening to totally absorb traditional media, as if we would all just be posters on a big platform where everyone got a voice. And it doesn't feel like that anymore. These platforms seem vulnerable, and a lot of people are questioning their relationships with them. And I want to ask you, do you think we as journalists should be active on social media? Well, that's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I gave a speech in 2013, long time ago, but I was just like, how great is Twitter? I love Twitter. It's the best thing. I think that dated pretty quickly, I have to say. And I've been quite dramatically moving away from it personally for a long time. And I really would encourage our journalists to do the same. I mean, I think there's an interesting thing. By posting on Twitter, you are working for Twitter. It's important to know that you're not working for anyone else but Twitter. Um, and I think that f has felt less and less good, hasn't it, since Musk took over? You know, if, if the company is owned by someone whose apparent aim, quite clearly, actually, is to reinforce views from the far right, um, A, can you trust them with your data and with your tweets? And B, do you want to be feeding his algorithm, feeding his his cash balance? Although I don't think his cash balance, we're doing that well from his acquisition to Twitter. So um, I think, you know, still governments and MPs and you know organisations post news on there, but I don't see it 
as a great place for journalists to get stories anymore. And I don't think it's been good for anyone's mental health for quite a long time. <laughs> One of the most pressing issues for British people today is, of course, a cost of living crisis that is intensifying. We're also seeing pay disputes across several industries that have culminated in train strikes, in strikes that threaten to paralyse the NHS. It's a difficult winter in Britain. And I wonder how you think The Guardian should go about covering this time. Again, I think it's about emphasising what it's really like to be on the harsh end of this cost of living crisis. So that's the human stories. And, and we've had some absolutely heartrending stories that have made me cry. I just, you know, it's such a shameful thing in the sixth richest country in the world. You know, we, we absolutely should be ashamed that anyone is not eating and is not being kept warm. So we have to tell those human stories and I think with a sense of outrage. And we also have to explain how we got here. You know, it's not by chance. It is a combination of some global factors such as inflation, some sort of, you know, mostly European factors such as the price of energy. But most of it is driven by our own government combination of Brexit and austerity, which has absolutely decimated public services in this country over the last decade, which means that there's not much of a support net and big changes are needed, I think. And The Guardian has chosen to focus on the cost of living crisis for this year's Christmas appeal. Why did you choose the two charities that we have chosen and what do you hope that they can do to ease this problem? It's really interesting, Michael, actually, because as I mentioned, I think this is something that I and lots of Guardian readers feel really upset about and angry about. Um, and so we really wanted to find uh, charities that had a very immediate impact. And so we chose locality and citizens advice. So locality is a sort of umbrella organisation that supports hundreds of grassroots community groups uh, to tackle local issues. So that might be things like food banks and warm rooms. Who'd have thought, by the way, in Britain that we would have to provide warm rooms to people to go and sit in to keep warm anyway. Incredible. But incredible. also incredible, um, shameful. And then citizens advice, which uh, might be more familiar to people, but they help people in crisis work out what to do. And they're a very effective sort of front line. So we thought these were two very active charities and we've been absolutely inundated with donations this year. I did the Guardian telethon at the weekend where we speak to readers and it was just an incredibly moving day. People were giving considerable sums and they're just really angry about what's happening and they trust the sort of Guardian to help them find a good way to help. Coming up, Catherine Viner on the word of the year and some reasons to be hopeful. Catherine, the common theme of so much of what we're talking about today is a feeling of crises in different institutions and things that used to feel reliable from our democracies to healthcare to international relations to the climate itself. And in fact, the Collins Dictionary word of the year this year was permacrisis, the feeling of instability and insecurity that comes with everything seemingly falling apart. Do you share that sense of the age that we live in? 
I mean, it'd be quite hard to deny it, Michael, I have to say, Um, (laughs) much as I'd love to. um, I think it'd be quite hard to deny it. I mean, I I do understand that some people will find the the news itself um, really disturbing. All I'd say is that in The Guardian, we try and give you the context to help understand why it's happening. We try to find sort of the hopeful stories that give you a way out of it. And we try to make you laugh sometimes sort of bleak kind of humour, but we'll make you laugh anyway, you know, because the trouble with the idea of thinking we're in a permanent crisis, it, it might make you stuck there. And I think we want, all want to get out of it. But if that is the age we're living in, with one huge consequential story coming after another, how do you as an editor-in-chief cover that? How do you decide what to prioritise? Whatever they're covering, it might be the most important story of the world, or it might be the most important story of that hour. But there's a broader context to it, you know, that we've got to see the bigger picture, mm-hmm. that we can't lose our minds over that one incident. Um, and then occasionally that an incident will demand it. You know, and I think that's, that is almost the definition of my job really is to sort of keep that overview. Because if everything is the biggest deal in the world, then nothing is, right? It's hard to understand what's really consequential when there are so many big things happening. Exactly. And then you do feel you're in a state of perm crisis. And we know that when people are in a state of crisis, they don't make good decisions, you know. And so if we can try and get that sense of context and calm, try and look at the world squarely and sort of say, actually, that is really important, but that isn't. I think that can really help help our readers as well as help journalists. Last year, you said that that buried in the many problems the world was dealing with was the potential for someone or a movement of people to come forward with new solutions. Do you see anything on the horizon that fits that criteria, someone or some group seizing the initiative? God, you said make me feel sentimental about the me of a year ago there, Michael. Obviously, very (laughs) optimistic me. The good old days. Yeah. Actually, I do. I do. I think, you know, Anthony Albanese, who won the election in Australia for Labour, such an important election win for the environment. Together, we can take advantage of the opportunity for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower. I think Lula's victory in Brazil against Bolsonaro you know, possibly the the most dangerous leader that has been in the last 10 years uh, across the world. We are getting back our freedom. I think there's a very strong uh, movement in the US around abortion and trying to protect women's right to abortion, which is having an impact on federal politics, which is inspiring lots of, you know, women-led organisations there. Um, and I do think I do think this series of strikes in Britain, which is lots of people like uh, nurses and ambulance workers who held the country together through the the COVID crisis, and indeed politicians stood on their doorsteps and clapped for, but are you know historically underpaid. You know, could they turn Britain into a higher wage economy? Could they help turn Britain into a more equal society? You know, I think there are there are people who are are giving us hope in that way. And speaking of people seizing the initiative, there's perhaps no better example than the extraordinary uprising led by women in Iran, which has paralyzed the country and become the biggest challenge to the Islamic Republic, more or less in its history. I mean, how do you see what's going on over there? Well, exactly as you 
portrayed it, uh, Michael, it's an incredibly inspiring uh, movement. As you say, it's led by women, lots of young women. Uh, the most difficult for the thing for us is that it's quite hard to report on Iran. There are no Western reporters uh, there, and so it's hard for us to understand what's going on. It's situations turned quite grave, it seems, in recent weeks with public executions and so on. But there is something so bold, uh, the videos that have got out, they're so bold, they're just sort of true bravery of, of often young women fighting for their rights and it's impossible not to be inspired by them. Yeah, I mean, you talked about your your point of view now versus last year. Last year, we were still in the grips of a pretty acute COVID pandemic. And I suppose it's easy to forget that in the year since, the combination of vaccines and, and you know, the changing nature of the virus means that that has eased. I mean, COVID has, for most people, moved on. And I guess that's a hugely good thing, too. I mean, it's really, really important. I mean, I don't think it's the case everywhere. I think if we were recording this in China, where COVID is absolutely rampant at the moment, it would be a different story. But you're right. I mean, the story of the vaccines is an incredibly cheering story of what happens if the world's top scientists put their heads together and um, come up with with something to, you know, save the world. Um, and uh, we take it for granted, I think probably because we're so relieved that we're able to go out again and that when people do catch COVID, which, you know, in Britain is happening quite a lot at the moment, they're really not very ill. There's um, in hospitals last week, um, the number of admissions for flu overtook COVID for the first time. Wow. Then that's, that's not to be sniffed at. That definitely wasn't true this time last year. Absolutely not. And on that optimistic note, and finally... I'd like to know, what were the stories in this particularly grim year that brought you a feeling of joy and hope for the future? Well, there were were loads. I'm I'm glad this is a great place to end. There were loads of uplifting stories this year, whether it's... um Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe getting released from Iran, a great moment for her family and for um, all of her supporters. Elon Musk possibly getting his comeuppance. Sam Bankman-Fried definitely getting his comeuppance. It might be Hamza winning strictly. But probably my cheeriest moment of the year was when the England women's football team won the Euros. Even if you're not an England fan, you know, the sight of these tough athletic women playing brilliantly. And then my favourite moment, which was when there was a sort of press conference uh, with the coach and the team invaded it, singing, jumped on top of the desk, danced on the desk. And it was just a moment of sort of sheer joy. And we'll take these moments of joy where we can. Mm, Hang on to them tightly. (laughs) Catherine Viner, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you, Michael. Happy New Year to you. That was The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner. As she said, The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal has begun, with the cost-of-living crisis pushing 14.5 million people below the poverty line. More families than ever are facing a really bleak Christmas. If you were to pick between heating and eating, which would you choose? So people don't have to make that decision. We're raising funds for charities working on the front line. All donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality to help local grassroots projects which support those who have been hit the hardest. 
On this last regular episode of the year, we also want to say goodbye to someone who's helped to craft the sound of Today in Focus since the podcast started four years ago. Our masterful sound designer, Axel Kakutier, I'm going to miss saying that name, who leaves us this year. Axel has lifted every episode he's touched. I think everyone who works on this show has their own Axel moment when the way he's scored a scene or a moment has just been perfect and left us a little bit speechless. Best of luck for the future, Axel. Today's episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And that is it for today and for the year. We're all so grateful that you've given us a small slice of your days to tell you the stories that we really think matter. We really love doing it. So from all of us who work on Today in Focus, thank you very much for listening. Next week, we'll be running The Guardian's hit investigative series, Can I Tell You a Secret? And then we're back on January 3 with regular episodes of Today in Focus. Talk to you then. Have a great Christmas if you celebrate and a wonderful new year. Bye-bye. This is The Guardian. Thank you.